0: reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1 verses 68 till almost the end of the chapter Zechariah's song praise be to the Lord the God of Israel because he has come and redeemed his people he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he said through his holy prophets of long ago salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath he swore to our father abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because the tender mercies of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, but to guide our feet from, but to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning everyone. Through this Advent season we have enjoyed uh, opening as a congregation several gifts. Uh, we started with the gift of creation uh, when remember Leah Costemo came and spoke to us about the joy of being created, being in creation. Then Matt Lynch uh, helped us unwrap the gift of, uh, of wisdom and uh, uh, last uh, Sunday, we had another gift, uh, the gift of worship. Thank you again, Edna, for that, that really insightful and inspiring sermon. I saw a few more hands lifted this morning. Uh, I'm sure you were, you, you were joyful to be here, uh, braving the snow. Some of you happy with Argentina's uh, uh, triumph over France, some of you maybe not, so, um, but I want to welcome uh, uh, Mariam, to uh, help us unwrap another gift, please. Um, many of you know Mariam because she was part of First Baptist. And as you know, she is an expert in the, in the book of James, mostly. But She is the associate professor at New Testament in uh, Region College. And uh, as I was uh, reading more about her, and I've been wanting to ask her this a little bit just before I pray for her. She was staffed in a church, was it a church called scum of the earth. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the name of scum of the earth? What What, what was that about?
2: <laughs> yes, uh, it was a church in Denver, Colorado, where I was doing my master's, um, a church plant in the inner city. Uh, so the, the name actually comes from 1 Corinthians 413, where Paul says, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Um, and it's, it's a, a point of humility on Paul's point. We're not above you as leaders, we're actually The lowest of you and we're here to serve you. Um, So it was a church in the inner city We served a dinner before or during our service it changed during my time there Um, and we had All the people that you would expect in the inner city as part of our midst Um, we met in the evenings and it was uh, Yeah, it was a quite an adventure of a time for a very small town Conservative girl to end up in that church was a surprise, but it was a delight
1: (laughs) Thank you Mariam Uh, very inspiring I want to uh, pray for you as you lead us in, in the reflection. Dear Father, we give you thanks for Maria for the gifts that she brings to the academia, to Vancouver, to uh, Regent College in particular, and for the gift that she um, helps us unwrap this, this morning. Please attune our hearts to your word uh, so that uh, we may be uh, transformed by it, so that we may uh, bear your light. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you,
2: David. Well, it is a delight to be back with you all. This was my church when I was well, when I first moved here for a number of years. And then um, when we got married, when I got married, we had to pick a church together, and we ended up in one in our neighborhood, which is just as well on days like these to, to walk our kids, you know, two blocks instead of having to go anywhere. Um, but nonetheless, thank you, Roger, for letting me jump in. The choir was my were my people and it's good to with you again um, so it's a delight to be back um with you all and i'm impressed how many of you actually made it out <laughs> i was not sure what we would be doing this morning um so i have to say uh, as i begin there's not a lot when i look around at the news or around that that is to like in the world right now the colds and viruses as was prayed for going around this winter are particularly virulent um, and attacking vulnerable people. Um, Meanwhile, a friend in the UK wrote that their energy bills are up 300% this year. And while it's not quite that painful here, it's definitely bills are more than most of us have budgeted for and we're feeling that pain. Um, and some are finding it's more than they can afford. I had, my neighbors were helping refugees who were escaping Afghanistan, um, people who were stuck hiding from the Taliban after they had already killed their husband and father, and they've just managed to get them here, um, the wife and daughter here. My husband is Ukrainian, so you can imagine how this past year has gone for us. Um, We've supported a childhood friend who is on the front lines and we have hosted people fleeing with nothing but a suitcase from their their whole livelihoods gone. Darkness, oppression, hostility and helplessness. They all feel to be echoing around us and pressing in all around us. The world just it just feels more chaotic. And it's exhausting to keep up with several years after the the pandemic, as things just keep going. We're exhausted. And I taught this past semester a course on on the time period of Judaism before and leading up to the time of the New Testament. And that, too, was a time of significant darkness. Herod the King was as likely to build the temple and make it glorious for the Jews as he was to capriciously murder anyone he saw as a threat, up to and including executing hundreds of Pharisees for opposing him, much less murdering his own wife and sons, you know, minor details (laughs) in the history. Revolts and protests were liable to start for any number of reasons. Some of them led to peaceful ends, but many were crushed with extreme violence. The hope that had been so pronounced when the temple was cleansed from the oppressive empires and sovereignty restored to Israel was decimated by decades of corrupt kings and corrupt priests, willfully leading Israel back into the arms of empire, where the whims of Rome now dictated their lives. Darkness, oppression, hostility and helplessness, they echoed all around the Jewish people pressing in on them was hope to be found in military might and violence or was hope to be found in withdrawing from society or in in the control found in seeking it to be extra good follow all the rules in the hopes that god would relent and rescue them how do we respond to these times of darkness seeking to control every last detail of our lives in an attempt to at least push the darkness from my little realm, escape to fantasies of when we all get to heaven and then we, therefore we can ignore the situations around us which we have no control over. Or we can get intensely invested in social justice issues or fall into despair about humanity's ability to actually bring about justice. How do we cope? And what difference does the advent of Jesus actually make? in how we respond. Does it? Or do we functionally forget in our daily lives? We worship God on Sundays, we light our Advent candles, but we feel the responsibility to solve our worlds by ourselves during the week. I find myself readily falling into that kind of praxis without meaning to. Does Jesus make a difference? Today, I want to look at two songwriters, two prophetic anthem singers who firmly, firmly believed that this baby would change everything about the darkness around them, that this baby was, in fact, the answer to all the injustice and oppression that they faced, that he was, in fact, bringing the light of salvation to their darkened world. And this salvation is, was, is in all its fullness, both salvation amidst the darkness of this world bringing justice and peace to troubled peoples, but also salvation for the future, the type of salvation we may more often think of. But for both Mary and Zechariah, Jesus's birth presaged a change from the darkness that they could see around them to light in breaking in their very lives. And as we wrestle with the darkness around us in our world, we should not take that for granted. So Mary's song in Luke 1 begins with her personal praise for God's work. Two things strike me when I look at these verses that somewhat surprise me from what I guess you could just call my expectations of how I'm supposed to worship. It's the juxtaposition of all the glory that she points directly to God and at the same time how she praises God for glorifying her. I'm not used to being able to do that, like we just talked about God. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The glory goes entirely to God, whom she calls the Lord, God, my Savior, the Mighty One. It is entirely God's work that is in her focus, particularly in this moment when Elizabeth has just greeted her with recognition for the work that God has done. Elizabeth greets her and recognizes Mary as the mother of my Lord, saying, why has the mother of my Lord come to visit me? Elizabeth's acknowledgement must have been such a powerful affirmation moment for Mary to finally be able to put into words the thoughts and the praises that had been brewing in her mind since the angel's visit. And Mary can finally verbalize this great work of God that has also lifted her from obscurity. And that theme then affects how she processes the rest of this, the implications of this miraculous conception. If God can look in favor on her, her humbleness, then her confidence in how God will act in other situations is not a mere intellectual theology, head knowledge from scripture she's memorized, but it's experiential. She rejoices with Elizabeth in God's mercy, which is for those who fear him, something they both have now experienced in miraculous ways. Now, why do I highlight this? It seems to me that sometimes our difficulty in remembering the relevance of Jesus to the darkness of our world has a lot to do with our own lack of experience. We can't seem to say with any confidence that the Lord has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant and has done great things for me. This perspective, however, would be a game changer for our daily lives because we would be more prone towards looking for God to keep working when we can say these things now my father was ill for 25 years with a degenerative illness and towards the end of his life some of his final words were god has been good he could say this because he sent, spent those years of illness pointing at moments where he had seen god at work a doctor just happened to have read an article on an experimental treatment and passed by his room when he was crashing and suggested that they try something different and saved his life. Or before that, in Vietnam, bombs struck at the desk he'd been sitting at just moments before when a whim to go outside had struck him. He cultivated eyes that said, God has been good to me. Even as he struggled with being stripped of his work, his freedoms, his health, his memory, even indeed the world was dark to him. But he had experienced the goodness of God, and so he continued to look for it. Maybe some of us long to experience the goodness of God in our darkness. Maybe others of us have, but we've forgotten, and our focus has shifted like like Peter's in the storm on the water. Our focus shifts to the darkness around us, away from the goodness of God. And so may we all find an Elizabeth in our life who can re-unlock in us that praise and remind us that God has been good, no matter our circumstances. The rest of Mary's song then looks at God's salvation, his mercy as she calls it, and how that plays a very pragmatic role in this world. While he has looked with favor on Mary's lowliness, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. These are less experiential. The proud in Mary's world actually remained proud. Herod remained on the throne and as King directly threatened Jesus's life as an infant, forcing the family into flight as refugees to Egypt. Rome remained the empire in power, and it was under Roman authority and by Roman method that Jesus would eventually die. The proud and the powerful remain on their thrones no matter uh, Mary's proclamation. Putin still gloats at destroying Ukrainian power grid and freezing civilians. Life under the Taliban continues to be deadly. Famine again devastates in sub-Saharan Africa, exacerbated by corrupt leaders, and so on and so on. On smaller scales, some will struggle to thrive under prideful bosses who delight in letting others know their place. The arrogant within some social circles can silence those who dissent to their ideologies, as can be seen in doctors who find themselves in a moral dilemma around medical assistance in dying. The powerful seem to remain on their thrones no matter the attempts to reason with them or to pray for relief. But Mary is adamant because of this baby, the arrogant, no matter how secure they seem, are in fact already brought low because the true king has arrived. And as Paul will later write, no matter what the world looks like to us, the true king is already seated on the throne. And he will bring all powers that oppose him to an end. Mary announces that reality has changed because of this baby. God is at work showing his mercy to his people and will continue to be at work because that is his nature. That is reality no matter what we're seeing around us. And her uncle-in-law agrees. Having laughed at the angel and been struck dumb for his disbelief, and now receiving voice again for his active faith in naming his son John, Zechariah has also experienced the strange mercy of God. As a priest, he's been interceding with God for years on behalf of his people. And now, now he knows that the intercession has been effective. God is at work. God is here. God is with us. Even though presumably Jesus would not yet have been born since Elizabeth was farther along than Mary, when Zechariah is given voice again, he rejoices, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant, David. He has, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Notice, while Mary called God my savior, Zechariah pronounces that God has now raised up a savior in order to save his people from their enemies. God, my savior, is at work and Zechariah no longer doubts. Despite the darkness that surrounds him, his wife's age and barrenness were defeated. His muteness relieved, his child born despite his doubts. What mercy. And yet Zechariah praises God for the even greater child about to enter the world, the mighty savior. For Zechariah, this salvation again looks present. His people, oppressed by Rome, will be rescued from the hands of their enemies. But for this priest, the goal isn't simply rescue. Salvation comes so that we might serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness all our days. God's salvation leads to his people's righteous living. Paul may say it in a way we're more familiar with in Romans 5. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also excel, uh, exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What then are we to say? Should we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin go on living in it? When we are freed from physical oppression, it is not a license to go our own way, such as when someone comes into money and then becomes oppressive of others with it. When we are, as Zechariah proclaims, claims, freed from the oppression of Rome to be able to live lives of holiness, we are freed to be able to live lives of holiness and righteousness. And the same goes for spiritual salvation. We are not freed from the punishment of sin in order that we may presume on grace and presume that God, God will give us ongoing forgiveness. If we persist in sinning, God cannot be mocked. But we are freed from the darkness to live lives that represent God in the world. Freedom, salvation leads immediately to the righteousness of God in all we do. And Zacharias celebrates the hope that this outcome means for his people. Now, freedom is an interesting word in our world. (laughs) Richard Baucom describes the modern myth of freedom as untrammeled independence. It sets freedom in absolute contrast to dependence relationship community belonging we want a freedom to self-define self-create and we want nothing no community no structures to limit us and our possibilities but he goes on to say that this untrammeled independence is the myth that destroys community and it inhibits commitments and relationships it exploits the natural world and can envision god only as a restriction on my freedom. A God who frees us in order that we might live holy lives cannot be rightly worshipped by people who believe freedom is for myself to live as I choose. So Bauckham concludes that freedom of choice is valuable, not merely in itself, but because it's freedom to make the right choice. It is the freedom to choose good and thereby become good that matters. We are freed from oppression and dominion, from poverty and disease, from the necessity to sin, but we are freed for God, for other people, for creation. He calls this freedom with belonging. We are freed from sin in order to become the image-bearers of God that we were made to be. Free to choose not good or evil, but the freedom to express the perfect goodness of God in our own being. Our freedom is perfected when, through the choice of good rather than evil, we obtain the freedom simply to be good. Our freedom, our salvation, serves to make us lights in imitation of the true light of the world who came into the world at Christmas. So in some small way, I mean, not the fullness of it, but in some small way, we also inherit John's call then. For Zechariah continues, he turns his attention to his infant son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn will, from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. As one who came to parenthood late and unexpectedly, my heart actually aches with this prophecy. Did Zechariah catch a glimpse in this moment of the hard, lonely road John would have to walk? Did he remember the fates of so many of the prophets of the Old Testament? Did he hold his baby and ache with fear for his outcome, even as he praised God and gloried in the redemption that that John would be preparing Israel for? All we know of John's life is that a brief summary given right after the speech, that John grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. John, that miraculous child of elderly parents, forerunner of the Messiah, Walked a lonely path as the world prepared for the arrival of God's salvation. And sometimes we, as we seek to live faithful lives, also will find ourselves isolated. Feeling that we're in the wilderness, in a hostile world. And yet we still need to remain faithful to our call to become imitators of Christ. Image bearers we were made to be little lights of faithfulness and holiness in a world darkened by sin and oppression and like john there's no guarantee that we will see the outcome of our faithfulness but that makes the outcome no less certain the powerful rulers have been toppled the prideful scattered announces mary she uses the past tense (laughs) By the tender mercy of our God, Zechariah says, hear that, by the tender mercy of our God, this light for salvation will dawn. The world will be put right through the one who guides our feet on the path of peace. What a beautiful promise. I long for the day when our feet walk the path of peace wholeheartedly all around the world. And we hold, therefore, to the promise that Jesus gave us in John 14. A promise, I think, is fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. Not peace as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. We walk the path of peace in confidence, despite the darkness, despite the trouble, the oppression, oh, the hostility around us, not because we're stronger and we've grit our teeth harder, but we've caught a glimpse of the dawn that is breaking in. We can face the darkness of our world with assurance, not because we're in control, but because we know that the light has broken into this world And we now have the Spirit of Christ guiding us, setting us free to be holy, to be righteous, ourselves lights in the darkness, shimmering reflections of the light of Christ himself. At Christmas, the light for salvation entered our world, and that makes all the difference as we look at the darkness around us. Nothing may seem to have changed, but everything has changed. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.